Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Revelation 22. What a, what a special bond Christians have together. And what happiness we have in seeing each other and talking to each other. And uh, I know by experience the happiness that comes in my heart when I see people who love the same Lord. We are studying the doctrine of sanctification or a Christian culture or holiness or how to become like Christ or how to put on Christ. We discussed how to do that. And if we answered how to do that in one word, we would say we've got to be violent. We've got to kill sin. That was from Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. The violent will take heaven by force. Then we studied the enemies that are so dangerous, the world, the devil, and the flesh, from Ephesians 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. And tonight we want to study the rewards that God gives out of his rich grace, out of his kindness, as a demonstration of his creativity and his justice and his love. So I invite you tonight to focus on God's Creativity and his rich love and grace and generosity. Some time ago, I read a book where they said, the author said that fatherhood is most like God when it is generous. I had not thought of that before. I wonder if generosity is one of the chief marks of being a good father, a father like God. He is very generous with us. He pours out kindness on all sides. And there are some things that he gives to all people. To all people, he gives sun, life, rain. To all people, he gives breath. He holds them together. To all of the sheep, He gives them his righteousness. He gives them the Holy Spirit. He gives them entrance into heaven. So are you following this? If you look out over the whole world, you would see a broad field, and he gives to them what's called common grace. Common grace is grace that goes to everyone but doesn't save them. It's all of the goodness and happiness that we all see and feel, stopping short of salvation. And then if you, if you make the, the tower going upward a little bit smaller, we have the grace that he gives to his children. And that would include entrance to heaven, baptism by the Spirit, justification, the righteousness of his Son, union with Christ, being bound together with Jesus, adoption, Called a son of God? Redemption being purchased out of slavery? These are given to all God's children. So if you're picturing a pyramid, on the bottom level you would have all men and they receive common grace. If you move up a level, you would have all God's children and they receive what we call special grace. But that is not all. 
There are some theologians who believe there's only two levels. There's common grace given to all men, and there's special grace given to the children of God. But I would like to teach you tonight that even though all true Christians are given life and redemption and adoption and justification, and even though all true Christians serve God from gratitude, do you remember the story in Luke chapter 7 where the immoral woman came into Jesus while he was eating at Simon the Pharisee's house? And she came in during their whole conversation and she washed his feet with her tears and wiped his feet with her hair. And what does Jesus say in Luke chapter 7 verses 40 to 45? Simon, there is a story of a man who owed 500 denarius, 500 pennies. Something around 7,500 or 10,000 rand. There was another who only owed 50, 500 or 1,000 rand. But the Lord forgave them both. The one who owed 10,000, the one who owed 1,000. Simon, which one do you think is going to love him more? And Simon says, well, obviously the one who's forgiven 10,000. And he looks at the woman and says, she loves much because she was forgiven much. Which is, of course, a rebuke to Simon because Simon has much to be forgiven from, but he doesn't see it. She sees it and is forgiven. And then he goes on to refer to service that comes from gratitude and love as a response to grace. Now, although all Christians serve God out of love and gratitude, there is actually more in the Bible And I don't know of a verse or a passage that is better than Revelation 22. If there was another passage, it would be Matthew 25, verses 15 to 30, that we're reading this month, the parable of the talents. But let's see this one verse, just a few words, and let's draw out four or five or six principles from it. And then some applications for rewards before we go to the Lord's table. Revelation 22, verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me. To give every man according as his work shall be. Revelation is a remarkable book for many reasons. But what has sadly happened many times with the book of Revelation is that people have overlooked many of the clear principles for Christian living that come, for example, from the overcomer's promises in Revelation 2 and 3 or the Beatitudes. Did you know there are many Beatitudes in Revelation? Blessed are the, blessed are the, We tend to think those are only in Matthew 5. There's many Beatitudes in Revelation. We commonly miss those. There is much about perseverance. There's much about worldliness. There's much about repentance. There's a lot about the glory of Christ in Revelation. But we commonly miss it because we are seeing demons with hair like a woman and a face like a lion. Or we see the four horsemen in chapter 6. And so we 
sometimes miss some of these statements that are very helpful for us and commonly overlooked. In Revelation 22, verse 12, he gives us one of these statements for Christian living that we need to have. It's a simple statement. Look down at the words, starting with the first two. And behold. Pay attention to this. Don't forget this. I did on my computer a little search for behold. Up came all the occurrences. My computer program has a button, graph, at the top. I just clicked graph, and all of the books in the Bible that use that word behold stand out in front of me in bars so I can see which books use them the most. Dun, 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 dun. Revelation, behold. The graph is huge. The whole way through the book, he's saying, look at this. Don't forget this. There's a lot in this book that Jesus wants you to look at. He wants you to look at this. Behold this. I'm coming quickly. Some translations say, I'm coming soon. Raise your hand if your Bible says soon. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming soon. Jesus says that repeatedly. Do you see it? Look down at verse 7. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Verse 10. The time is near. Verse 20. I'm coming quickly. He actually does that throughout the entire book. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 22, all those references I shared with you. Chapter 12, verse 12. What does he mean by this? He means you be watching. Matthew chapters 24 and 25. You be watching. Don't fight so much to be trying to nail down the day or the time or the date. Some man wrote in 1989, maybe he wrote it in 1988, 89 reasons Jesus will come back in 1989. Well, he was off. Don't don't fight to discover details to be able to pinpoint, well, in Daniel chapter 9, there's 70 weeks, and if you multiply the 70 weeks and add this and subtract this, and then the Gregorian calendar... No, stop all that. Watch every day and be alive and alert and ready every day. Be watching every day. That's what the teaching is. Look at this, Jesus says. Behold, watch this part. I'm coming quickly. It could be any time. And I have my reward with me. Notice what kind of reward is it? What kind of reward? It's described by a little word with two letters. It's his. That shows you what grace it is. However he had to get it, whatever he had to do, he's the one who produced, found, created. He's the one who put the thought and the energy and the effort and the resource and the time and the love to get that reward. Because he's so full of kindness. He's so rich with generosity. You can't outgive the giver. But he's got a reward. The ESV says recompense. What does that mean? Reward might be a little easier to understand. I've got my reward with me. It's right here. I'm coming back and I've got it. Look at the next phrase. Who am I going to give it to? I'm going to give it to individuals. Each. Every. I won't miss one person. I'm going to judge them all. 
And I'm going to do it accurately because I can see right into the hearts of man. And in Revelation chapter 20, I've got books that are listing out all the works of man. And Malachi chapter 3 verses 15 and 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke one to another and the Lord hearkened and heard it. What did the Lord hear? Did you hear that Malachi 3.15? Those who feared the Lord spoke often one to another. When we love one another, when we love God and we meet and we talk about what God has done. God listens to you talking to your fellow brother about Christianity. He listens when you're doing that. And he, this is the next verse, Malachi 3.16. And the Lord hearkened and a book of remembrance was written before him for the ones that feared the Lord and that thought about his name. The next verse says, and those ones will be mine in the day when I make up my jewels. Those ones are going to be my jewels. That's amazing. He not only prepares a reward for us, he prepares us to be his reward. He makes a careful list of every time you are overcome with love and joy for him. He makes a list of the time when you say, let me just call that guy and see if we can talk about the Bible. Let me just take some extra time on a Sunday night and talk about the scripture. I say that and how I would love to do it, but I'm often so tired on Sunday nights. So all of that to say, he knows what he's doing with this reward and he's preparing it for his people. Final point on verse 12. Who does he give it to and by what basis does he judge? What's the basis? Each person's decisions. He's going to give this based on your decisions, what you chose to do. So tonight, I would like to preach to you on rewards for sanctification. And we summarize the whole message in this. Glorious, inspiring rewards are offered to God's children when they will faithfully serve the Lord and grow in holiness. If you will bring your life in line with the Bible, you will never be sorry because he will reward you. Some of the things that we're going to study, if you'll recall, today is the last message of the introduction. It's the fifth message, and we're just done with the introduction. Starting next week, we are going to study how to think like a Christian, then how to love like a Christian, then how to act like a Christian. The three perspectives, the head, the heart, and the hands. A Christian view of thinking and a Christian view of the affections and a Christian view of the common actions and all those three together make up the metaphysics and then the worldview and then the culture. Those three compiled together are going to make up a culture. We want to live like Christians, not like Afrikaners, not like Americans, not like the Tsonga, not like the Venda. We want to live like Christians. So let's study what the Bible says about it. And you're going to find some things where you're going to say, wow, I didn't grow up doing that. Or, wow, I'm 30 years old and I'm going to have to change for that. Wow, that's hard. I've got to do that 
There's no other examples I have in my whole life of people doing it like that. If I do that, I'm going to be standing against all those people. And tonight's message is, you'll never be sorry. You'll never be sorry if you're convinced that the Bible teaches it. And you say, I'm just going to live my life that way. Because he has amazing rewards. That's a good introduction, I hope. Let's look at some of the principles that come right from this passage. First one we'll notice is this. Faithful Christians will be rewarded for their service. Let me give you some proof texts. I'm going to give you many passages tonight. In fact, I I just didn't have enough time, but I was going to count these up and compare these with some of my other sermons. This may be the most cross-references I've ever used in a sermon. So I'm just going to pour these out. If you want the notes, you can have them or I'll email them to you. Uh, Or you can start scribbling. The Bible promises rewards constantly. There are rewards for taking persecution patiently. Matthew 5 verse 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are rewards for giving your money humbly. Matthew 6 verses 1 and 2. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men so that you can be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no Reward from your Father who is in heaven. There are rewards for prayer and fasting. Matthew 6, verse 5. Matthew 6, verse 16. There are rewards for giving a cup of cold water. Matthew 10, verse 42. There are rewards for devotion to God. Listen to this. Luke 18, verses 29 and 30. And it's repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of those three gospels are called the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they repeat much of the same material. For example, tonight we were in Matthew 24 and our brother mentioned, well, Luke 21, right. It's the synoptics. It's also found in Mark chapter 13 as well. So these synoptics often repeat the most important things. Luke chapter 18 is repeated in all three of the gospels. Luke 18 verses 29 and 30. He said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or sisters or, land, or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much in this time and in the world to come eternal life. So you give up here and you get paid back here and you also get paid back in the next life. Luke chapter 6, verse 35, there's rewards for loving your enemy. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, there are rewards according to your work. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, there are rewards that are like jewels. Rewards are commonly given in the Bible. I could give many more verses, but I'd be repeating some of the future points that I have to make. So I'm just going to stop there and say this. It is more common to ignore the teaching on rewards than it is to deny them. I read one article by a Presbyterian pastor who wrote the article years ago who said, there are no rewards for Christians that are different. Every Christian gets exactly the same reward. So basically the reward is heaven and it has nothing to do with your works. It is completely given by God. And he made some good arguments and, and went through his article and I read it. But outside of that, I've, I've not heard of anyone else. I've not read anyone else. Now, I've, I've heard from friends that 
people, there are pastors and theologians who believe that they're, that what that man wrote, but I haven't personally read them. What I have experienced is this. People commonly ignore this teaching. It's not commonly taught about. Let me ask you, can you remember the last time you heard a sermon where a significant part of the sermon talked about good things God wants to give if you are faithful in holiness? I'm not talking about good things God wants to give if you are blessed or if you have some kind of prosperity. No, no, no. I'm talking about if you fight and kill your sin and you're weeping over your sin and you're working hard to read your Bible and memorize and serve the Lord with all your heart as a response to your loving service to God, he will pour out more rewards. Can, can you remember the last time you heard a sermon where that was an important part of the sermon? It's more commonly neglected than it is denied, but that's unusual because there are so many verses about it. And that leads me to the second point. The rewards for Christians differ based on their individual works. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The second principle is this. The rewards are different based on your decisions. Now you can see that from Revelation twenty two twelve, our text for the evening. I'll give to every man according to his works. But let's come and see it more clearly. First Corinthians chapter three, verse eight. Now the one who plants and the one who waters are one and every man will receive his own reward according to what? His labor. And he goes on and keeps talking more about this. Look at verse 13. Every man's work will be declared. For the day will declare it. It will be revealed by fire. The fire will try everyone's work to see what kind it is. Look at the next verse. If any man's work abides, which he has built, he will receive what? He receives a reward. Verse 15. But if any man's work is burned... He will suffer loss, but he himself will be what? Yet so is by fire. Brothers, that is explicit teaching that some Christians will make it into heaven without these other things called rewards. Some people are saved. They are sheep, but they are building in such a way that their lives Their life work will be burnt up. They themselves will be saved. But what foolish use of their time and money and children and opportunity. Verse 13 and 14 are explicit. This is talking to Christians. The whole context of the book is clear. It's talking to Christians. And verse 14 is explicit. That guy's going to be lost. That guy's going to lose his work, but he will be saved. But he'll be saved in a way which he'll regret. This is explicit teaching that rewards for Christians differ based on their individual works, on their dedication and their service. And this should not surprise us because God loves differences. These days, it is common for us to say, diversity is beautiful. Diversity is our strength. What they mean by that is this. 
if we can overthrow the remnants of anything Christian, if we can bring in a little Buddhist, a little atheist, a little secular humanism, a little paganism, a little African traditional religion, a little Hinduism, ah, that's the kind of diversity they want because it's really an attack on Christianity. When they say diversity is our strength, what they mean is if we can somehow bring in any ideas that are contrary to Christianity, that would be our strength because we are all attacking as best we can the remnants of whatever Christian heritage was brought here with the Bible. That's what it means. That's not at all the same thing as what I just said, that God actually loves great diversity and distinction. Look at the world. Look at the world that he's made. Look at the shapes of bodies. Look at the colors. Look at the plants and animals and trees. Compare a chameleon with a lion. Is there more similarity or more difference? Give me a similarity. They're both alive. Both have eyes. Four legs. Animals. Eat. Drink. Created by God. Tails. Some differences. Shoot it out. The eyes, well done, the eyes. Tail, colors, strength, yeah. Jesus is compared to a lion, not a chameleon. Shape, many, many things. There are far more profile pictures with lions on them than pictures of the chameleons on them. You can look at the distinction or the similarity Notice this, you're in 1 Corinthians 3. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 38. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 38, he's talking about the resurrection. And when talking about the resurrection, he describes some of the glories that you see now in this world that are only copies of the future glory of heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 38. But God gives it a body as it has pleased him and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, that's diversity. Another of fishes, another of birds. They're not all the same honor, are they? Oh no, look at verse 40. There are some celestial bodies, there are some terrestrial But the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. They're not the same in their glory. They're not equal. Verse 41. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For each star differs from another star in glory. What is he saying here? There are multiple glories in the world and some glories are greater the sun's a greater glory than the moon man is a greater glory than the animals have you noticed the people who love to talk about diversity also love to talk about how we're all one with nature demeaning the value of man and increasing the value of animals they'll have funerals for pets pets don't have immortal souls They'll kill their babies with abortion 
and not have a problem with it. They won't vote against it. They won't write letters. They won't put out uh, canisters on the front of their till at their shops saying, give me five rand to help us stop abortion in Louis Tricart. But they'll put out a canister with a picture of a kitten and say, give me five rand to help with kittens in Louis Tricart. Don't get me wrong. We need to care about animals. We need to care a thousand times more about humans. The glory of humans is greater than the glory of kittens. Our world is confused and they've put one over the other. How many times have you seen a bumper sticker that says save the rhino or stop poaching the rhino? How many times have you seen a bumper sticker or a sign saying stop murdering your children? We've completely mishandled the glory that God has given and the distinctions that God has given. But the point is this. God loves distinctions. There are six days of creation, six distinct days, and they all represent different glories that God made. But the greatest glory was on the sixth day when he made living creatures and on the final act of his creation when he made man. That was the greatest. That's the pinnacle. On that, he said, it's very good. You see, God loves distinctions. But that is hated by the world. Have you ever heard of Karl Marx? Karl Marx was a German Jew. And he wrote a book called Das Kapital and a number of other books, including the Communist Manifesto. Karl Marx had the idea that distinctions based on money and property were evil. And he said that all the wars and fighting and crime could be solved and we can move into a utopia, a heaven on earth, a paradise, if only we would get rid of the differences between the rich and the poor. He said our great problem is the fact that there's these rich people and they are oppressing the poor people. He called them the the capitalists, the people who held (coughs) the power over the businesses and the power over the tools. That's the problem, Mark says. The people who hold the tools, they crush the people who don't have the tools. And so we've got to somehow rebuild a world where everyone owns the tools. There's no distinction. That means you don't own your car. You don't own your land. You don't own. Owning is bad. So Marx taught. Interestingly, that's been picked up by the World Economic Forum, which a few years ago, maybe two years ago, put out a video. You can still find it on the internet. It's about a minute long. The first line of the video, they say, in the future, by 2030, You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. You'll only rent things when you want them. And they'll be delivered to your house by a drone. What are they getting at there? It's pure Marxism. And they say, how are we going to achieve this? They even say in that video, it's only a minute or two minutes long. They say in that video, how are we going to achieve this? We're going to have to have massive shifts in the way people live. 
Interesting. I wonder how they come across that. It's all Marxism. Marxism says, no, no, distinctions are bad. God says, no, I made suns to be better than moons. I made human flesh to be better than animal flesh. I made it that way, and it's good. And in heaven, there will be distinctions, because in heaven there will be a father, and he will be over the son. Right from the Godhead itself is a distinction. Marxism says, no, get rid of all distinction. The only word we want is equality. There's perfect equality among all people, men, ideas. That's satanic. Because some ideas are good and some ideas are bad. Some ideas are glorious and some ideas are less glorious. I say all that to say this. God has decreed. He has made it such that the differences among Christians in eternity will be based on their works. God gave more honey to bees than he did to wasps. And that's a good thing. Marxism wants to take away the bees' honey and we'll all be stinging each other with nothing sweet. In Dante's Paradise, that's a a poem written 700 years ago. He wrote a very long poem about heaven. Interestingly, in heaven, he shows that because of believers' works on earth, some believers see God's glory while dwelling in the moon. And they look upward and they're very happy because they are exalted far beyond earth. And then some believers are farther on in the next planet. Some believers are closer and closer until some believers are right up near the presence of God. That was Dante's depiction. Let me give you a third principle from Revelation twenty-two, twelve. It is possible to lose a reward by inactivity. Second John 8 says this, watch yourselves so that you do not lose what you have accomplished, but that you receive a full reward. Watch yourself because you can lose a reward. It's possible to lose what you have. Some rewards are to be given at the second coming. And some rewards are to be given during this present life. For time, I think we'll just draw our attention to these closing principles. There are rewards that are intended to be given here on this earth. And there are rewards that are intended to be given when Christ comes back. Doesn't he say that in verse 12? I'm coming and my reward is where? With me. Let me first give you some rewards that are given during this present life. 2 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. Peace, joy, and assurance of salvation. Answered prayer. He gives answered prayer to those who draw near to him. James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. You do not have because you do not ask, but draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is, if you labor to resist the devil, same passage, James chapter 4. If you resist the devil and he flees from you, if you draw near to God and he draws near to you, same passage, you will ask what you will and it will be done for you. That is, those people who labor hard, those believers who give themselves to the word, who give themselves to the means of grace, the tools, 
the Bible, the church, prayer, those people who devote themselves to their tools, they will find themselves here on this earth having answered prayer, assurance of salvation, and further spiritual resources to fight with sin. There's one more benefit here on this earth for those who are sanctified. Becoming part of a prosperous society. If you have one man in the village and he's a true, dedicated, growing, godly believer, he will not lie, he will not cheat, he will not steal. He'll bring honor to that village. He'll bring economic growth to that village because he will work hard and he'll always sell at an honest price and he'll never lie. He'll never cheat you. People will want to work for him and they will want to buy from him because that man is honest. What if you have two men like that? What if you have 10? What if you had 2% of the population? What if you had 50% of the population? What if you had 90% of the population who were true, dedicated, godly Christians? They never lied. They loved their enemies. They returned good for evil. If you did something bad to them, they gave you good in return. What if people like that dominated society? You would have honest laws. You would have no crime. You would be in a peaceful, prosperous, blessed society. You'd be living on a street, crimeless, joyful, happy, peaceful. That would be a reward in society. In fact, people want to get to those kinds of societies. Societies that have the most influence of Christianity are the societies historically since the time of Christ to today, where people immigrate to. Even if they don't believe in Christianity, they want to get there. This is a fascinating statistic. Every year during apartheid, more blacks immigrated into South Africa than out of South Africa. It's a free country they could have let. Well, in that sense, it was free. Immigration was free. You could leave if you wanted to leave, Why didn't the oppressed people leave? Because even under oppression that was unjust and wrong and should have ended and did end, thank God. Even under that oppression, people living in Congo still realized, you know what? I can live here with less grace or go there and be somewhere nearer to greater grace. If you don't like that, then you tell me why the immigration numbers were that way. What does that mean? That's a fact in history. It's a fact in history that the same thing is true of America. People are constantly trying to immigrate in. Why? Recently, I picked up two Pakistanis coming back from Elam. They have a shop in Elam. And as we were driving back, I asked them, is South Africa better than Pakistan? Oh, no, 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 Pakistan, much better, much better. Okay, then why did you come here? This place is better. <laughs> yeah, right. That's why you came here. You came here because this is better. What makes this place better? Oh, rich, rich, rich. Okay. And the shops, do you have more things you can buy? Yes, all oh, the shops are very good. You buy so much here. Okay. I've never been to Pakistan. I just got two guys in my vehicle who have been. This is what they're telling me. Oh, I say... So you like this place better? They say, yes, we do. But you, where are you from? You're English, not like South Africa. 
I said, well, I'm from the U.S. Oh, oh, get me visa. Get me visa. I come to U.S. Do you have a sister? <laughs> no, I don't have a sister. Well, my, I do have a sister, but she's married. <laughs> and then, why do you want to go to U.S.? First response. Life very, very good U.S. Life very good U.S. That's what he says. Why would he think that? Why doesn't he want to live in a country ruled by Muslims as he is a Muslim? They have their rule. It's 90-something percent Muslim. Why, why can't you just be happy with the, with the society that you've created? For some reason, you've got political instability and crushing poverty. You see, when there's more Christian influence... It creates the kind of society people want to be in or near or around. I'm not saying it's perfect. No one's saying any land here on the world is perfect. Of course, our world is filled with evil. But living in an evil place, if you have to live in an evil world, it's better to live in an evil world that's influenced by Jesus. Some rewards are given here on this earth. Assurance of salvation, answered prayer, further spiritual resources in a prosperous society. But some rewards are given at the second coming. Let me give you a few of these. Now, this is one of the things that immediately dominates the cross-references. But for time, I'm not going to be able to deal with many of these. Let's just look at a few. Are you still in 1 Corinthians? Go to chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to see a theme that we're, is, is all through the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 2 and 3. He starts with this phrase, Do you not know? What does Paul know when he starts with the phrase, Don't you know? He means this is obvious. Look at verse 3. What does he start with? Don't you know? This is supposed to be obvious. Verse 2. Don't you know that the saints will judge what? In verse 2, they're going to judge the world. If the world's going to be judged by you, aren't you worthy to judge the smallest issues? Verse 3, don't you know that we will judge what? Let me ask you, how many of you, before you heard me just read that, how many of you remembered that that verse was in the Bible and that someday Christians will judge angels? It's something we don't commonly think about. It's right there, and Paul says it's obvious. What, have you forgotten this? Like, you guys, you Corinthians are taking people to court. Come on, do I have to teach you everything? You don't take people to court because we're going to be judging angels. <laughs> this is a reminder that some of the rewards have to do with authority. I shared that one with you because we're in 1 Corinthians. Go back to Matthew 25. Sorry, Luke 19. You can see it in Matthew 25. It's clearer in Luke 19. Go to Luke 19. It's the story that's in Matthew 25. But Jesus uses some words here that we need to see. Luke 19. <clears throat> it's the story in Luke 19 of the, the talents. But this time when Jesus tells the story, in Luke 19, beginning in verse 12, he says there's these three servants, and he gives to the one ten talents. He gives to the second one five talents. 
He gives to the other one one talent. What happens here? Well, the first man gains 10. Look at verse 16. Lord, your talent has gained 10 talents. Verse 17, he said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, have authority over what? 10 cities. The second came and said, Lord, your pound has gained five pounds. Verse 19, he said likewise to him, be over how many cities? The first man took one and made 10. The second man took one and made five. The third one takes one and what does he do with it? You know the story. He doesn't do anything. So he's judged and he's called in verse 22, a wicked servant. And then what does he do with the money? Verse 24, he said to those who stood by, take from him his single pound and give it to the guy who has 10 pounds. That doesn't sound fair. It's Christian. Jesus comes and gives gifts to each of these men. The one man is amazingly successful. And at the end, he gets the loser's pound. You say tonight, your church is small. You say tonight, it seems like I'm not known or not remembered. If you are faithful with what you have, God will not forget. He will honor and reward that. This is a parable about faithfulness. It has nothing to do with You have to have a church with 10,000 people or 5,000. It doesn't mean that. It means, are you 100% faithful? Or are you 50% faithful? Or are you 10% faithful? That's that's the meaning of the parable. And the man who's 100% faithful in the calling he's been called to. (coughs) I think of our friend Marius. Baptized last October. What can he do? Answer, Marius, you be faithful with prayer, with Bible reading, with fighting with your sin as best you can. And the Lord who judges justly will see and remember and mark it all down. You lead your ma to Christ if you can do that. And you influence whom you can. They're where you're at. And God will see. You write letters and encourage people. You pray for them. You make phone calls. You send text messages. What can you do? You're on your bed. God knows, and he sees if you're being faithful or not. That's the lesson. But what's the reward? Authority over cities? Well, that's just a picture, you say. Maybe so. But Matthew 5, verse 5 says, Blessed are the gentle, they will inherit the earth. You inherit the earth? Those are metaphors too. Oh, really? Go to Revelation 2, verse 27. Revelation 2, verse 27. And to the one who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. If you just read verse 27, who would you think was ruling them? You'd say, oh, that's Jesus from Psalm chapter 2. From the second Psalm, that's got to be Jesus. Revelation 2, verse 27. He will rule them with a rod of iron. 
In the second Psalm, it says, Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But follow the context. In verse 26, Jesus is giving authority to the believer who overcomes. In verse 27, who is the man referred to with the word he? The believer. believer, The Christian. He will rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter, they will be broken, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. What does that mean? Well, I know this. It means authority. That's what the metaphor is. Some kind of authority over the nations. And find it again, look at chapter 3. Verse number 21. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Is Christ sitting with his father today on the throne? Yes, he is. And this will come to believers. Of the seven promises, at least two deal with ruling authority. That's 28%. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And I saw what? What does John see in Revelation 20, verse 4? He saw thrones. What happens from a throne? But ruling or governmental authority. I saw thrones and they sat on them. Who sat on them? Believers. Judgment was given to them, to believers. I saw the souls of those who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast nor his image, neither received his mark in their foreheads or in their hands. They lived and did what with Jesus? They reigned with him for a thousand years. Look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not live until the thousand years are finished. Oh. And again in verse 6, they will be priests with God and with Christ. They will reign with him a thousand years. Revelation refers to these people as kings. If they overcome, they sit with him. If they overcome, they rule with him. If they overcome, they reign with him. I have more cross-references up here. But what I want to bring to your attention is that there is some kind of ruling authority, some kind of power that is given out to believers And it is given apparently during the thousand years when Jesus comes back to earth, then there's a thousand years of peace and joy and blessing and faithful believers are honored and blessed. There's one final reward that is the greatest of all. And that is pictured in Matthew 5 verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. It's found in John 14, verse 3. You know verse 2. I go to prepare a place for you. But in verse 3 it says, I come back to receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. 
It's found in Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who walks through a field and finds a treasure. He hides the treasure, and for joy of that treasure, he goes and sells everything he has to buy the whole field. He wants that treasure. The treasure is Christ. Which is why in 1 Peter 1, verse 8, it says, Whom having not seen, we love. And we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Friends, the greatest, the final, the highest, the greatest reward that is given to all believers is a capacity to see and love and enjoy Christ. You will find that as you are serving the Lord now, you are expanding your heart to be able to receive more joy in Christ. And that is the greatest reward in heaven. All believers will get Christ. Some will have larger containers. I want to challenge you to live for Jesus, to fight with your sin, to serve the Lord, to love God, to obey everything in the Bible because you're expanding your capacity to enjoy that which is chiefly beautiful, to eat that which is the ultimate form of beauty, of deliciousness, to enjoy that which is undiluted pleasure. There's no greater happiness than God in Christ. And when you labor to become holy, when you obey everything, when you use your mind and your heart and your body the way God would have you do it, precisely and carefully the way he would have you do it, you are preparing yourself for everlasting joy. Everyone will be happy in heaven. Some will just have bigger containers for happiness. I want, I want the greatest container because 1 Corinthians says, covet, chapter 12, verse 37, 39, covet the best gifts. I'm covetous. I'm greedy for the best gifts. I want to enjoy all there is of Christ. And we ought all to long after that. In fact, Christ himself is trying to make us to long and hunger after a greater filling of his spirit and of his person and of his beauty and of his wonderful love. May we see that and work for that today. Oh, Lord Jesus, grant that we would understand the beauty of your person, that we would be taken up with love for God and Christ. Help us to serve you. Help us to devote ourselves to holiness so that we might find this final, greatest, highest, chief of all rewards to find joy in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.